As football fans, our relationships with loan signings can be complicated. How much do they really care? Will they get their hands dirty when the future of the club isn't intrinsically linked with their own? Aren't we just developing another club's player? But then there are the pros, the perfect opportunity to try before you buy, a financially viable alternative for clubs short of cash. Some clubs have forged indelible links with these short-term solutions, and it's them that we laud on today's episode of The Eleven. Hello, Ben. Hello, Arthur. Delighted to be here at Eleven Pods, if you've got any suggestions for our At Home on Loan Eleven. I can think of many Reading loan signings that I've endeared myself to. Luke Chadwick, he was fantastic. Matt Upson, I remember him as well being on loan at Reading. Um, so I'm interested in discussing some more from other clubs today. Uh, we're going to be playing a 4-3-3 formation. I feel like loan signings up front are always a, uh, a particular favourite of mine. As a Saints fan, we've currently got Armando Brogia on loan, who is incredibly good. And this feeling, I think, with loan signings of if they play really well, then there's no chance we'll see them again. You can't help <laughs> but fall for a loan signing, only for them to be ripped away the next season. Now, we tend to pick out nostalgic or obscure names on the eleven. Um, I guess goalkeeper, you get emergency loans, don't you? Or players from big clubs coming down to the minnows. Who have you gone for, Arthur? It is an emergency loan, and it is for a minnow. It's Jimmy Glass. That, oh, that name rings a bell. Why is that? Yeah, so essentially this is a player who played an enormous part in an incredibly dramatic season finale. After a series of goalkeeping issues, including first choice Richard Knight being recalled from his loan by his parent club Derby, Carlisle United were in a spot of bother. They were managed by Nigel Pearson at the time, and he was left with no goalkeepers and three games left of the season to save the club. Uh, essentially, they were teetering on the precipice in League Two, potentially about to be relegated out of the Football League. The Football League granted permission for an emergency goalkeeper signing, as we love to see, on loan. And Glass was their man. They signed him on loan from Swindon. In my research, it's strange the way the eleven takes you to quite bizarre places. I found myself watching full highlights of Jimmy Glass's first game for Carlisle United. <laughs> it was a, a three-all draw with Darlington. Um, he made a few absolutely excellent saves, but they were combined with a few errors. He spilled crosses and had general moments of panic. He followed that up, though, with a clean sheet in his next game. It was nil-nil against Hartlepool United. And that basically led to a dramatic culmination of the season on the 8th of May 1999, as Carlisle faced Plymouth, needing a win to stay in the Football League after Scarborough had earlier drawn with Peterborough. And with the scores level at one all after 90 minutes, Glass was waved forward for a corner by Nigel Pearson. A powerful Scott Doby header was kept out by the Plymouth goalkeeper, only for the ball to sit up for Glass. No. And he said, it fell to me wallop goal thank you very much my first thought after I scored was 
oh my god I'm about to get 2,000 people on top of me then someone whacked me in the face and I got a nosebleed <laughs> oh man that's an incredible story though I mean as far as loan signings go that must be the biggest impact that Carlisle have ever seen I would think so. The Times ranked Glass's goal as the seventh most important goal in football history. Incredible for a team like Carlisle United. I mean, they are a, they're a club with history, but to stay in the Football League, often you think these goals that are the most important in history will be to win cup finals or to win league titles. Unfortunately, Carlisle couldn't sign Glass on a permanent deal in the summer, uh, and he knocked around a bit at parent club Swindon before joining a host of other clubs until he eventually exited football in 2004. He, following his retirement, became a taxi driver in the oh. South Coast area of England. And most recently, he's been a player liaison officer at Bournemouth. So um, mm. back in the game, which is nice to see. His boots are on display at the National Football Museum. I feel like an 11 trip to the National Football Museum would be a pretty good outing. Yeah, this has to happen. And it must be very unusual for a goalkeeper's boots to be on display. Normally it's the gloves, isn't it? That, that are the kind of iconic piece of apparel. But there we yeah. go. I couldn't help but notice, actually, there is a book written about Jimmy Glass and this incredible achievement called One Hit Wonder, the Jimmy Glass story. And it always intrigues me when you go on a, a website like Amazon and you get You Might Also Like amongst the books, <laughs> where apparently if I like the Jimmy Glass story, I should read A Home for Unloved Orphans by Rachel Wesson. So that's an <laughs> odd connection, isn't it? That's utterly bizarre. Ben, you got left back this week, didn't you? I did. And playing at left back is Daniel Poodil. <laughs> what a player he was, by the yeah, way. Yeah, what a player he was. Um, an attacking left back. He had pace, he had directness, and he actually made 35 appearances for his country, the Czech Republic, which I thought was pretty impressive, predominantly known as being a championship player. Um, but he had an understated start to his career in Czech football. He played for Slavia Prague, Slovan Liberec, and Shamel Bilsani before a £1.5 million move to Genk lifted his pedigree. Uh, he was a regular at the club for three years, winning the Belgian League and the Cup. I feel like Shamel Bilsani sounds like a sort of nippy winger from Czech Republic. <laughs> he does, actually. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, but Daniel kept Shamel out of his own side, and uh, he was a, good, a, a big success, really, as in Belgium, like I said. Um, but he was lifted into our attention with a loan spell with Watford that sticks out for me. Um, this was in 2012-2013. He played 37 league games for the Hornets that season in a defence which included Marco Cassetti, Lloyd Doyley and Joel Ekstrand. Uh, and Watford finished third. This was actually the um, playoff final that they reached against Palace. Uh, I don't know whether you remember the semi with Troy Deeney's last minute drama after oh, Knockart missed the pen. That has to be one of the greatest moments in, frankly, football history, not even football league history. It's just the commentary, the drama, yeah. the swift transition from one end of the field to the other and Deeney smashing it in. What a goal. Oh. Yeah. So Puda was on the field that day. Um, but remarkably, and I think why this loan move was brought to my attention, was the fact that he was one of 
14 players signed on loan by Watford that summer. I don't know whether you remember this bizarre point of Watford's history, but um, they were owned by the Pozzo family, who also owned Udinese um, and also owned uh, Granada, sorry, out in Spain. And 12 players joined from those clubs um, because of the family connection. Pudil was perhaps the second most successful loan signing that season behind Alman Abdi. Um, but there was also Fernando Forestieri in there and Mate Vidra, who are kind of household names now. So um, an arguable thing. Udinese themselves, under the Pozzo regime, have loaned the most players out of any European club over the past decade. 62 players. My gosh, more than so Chelsea. You think of Chelsea when it comes to radical loan um, signings, but the Pozzos have taken it to a whole new level. And, and Pudil was one of the players that they brought in under their regime. He would ultimately join Watford permanently, uh, play 23 times in their promotion season two years later, before going on loan to Sheffield Wednesday and also impressing there. Um, Pudil now plays, age 36, for Hammer and Pincers FC in the <laughs> Sheffield and District Fair Play League. I can't. It's in England, Hammer and Pincers in the, in the yeah. English. That's incredible. Really bizarre. I can't confirm or deny whether he's actually played for them, but he is on their books uh, on their website. So um, Pudil, uh, by all accounts, sounds like a great guy. The fans loved him at Watford. So um, certainly a loan signing that they'll look back on fondly. With a promotion campaign, obviously that season he was on loan at Watford. They were not ultimately promoted, but sometimes players who promote who propel you to promotion from the championship aren't quite Premier League standard. So on that basis, getting these championship standard players in on loan, getting up and then being able to completely reset in the Premier League is probably not a bad school of thought, but I guess it does immediately disband the team <laughs> to yeah. get you up. Watford have probably suffered from that overall. They've they've perhaps punched above their weight to get into the Premier League on multiple occasions in the last decade, but haven't had the consistency and stability to stay there for very long at all. Who's at centre-back alongside Daniel Poodil? Alongside Daniel, I've gone for Stephen Colker. <laughs> of course you have. I Bizarrely, I saw him playing in the African Cup of Nations the other week. I know it's an amazing story that that he's yeah. um, having having had one England cap and one England goal. Incredibly, uh, he's now, as you say, playing for Sierra Leone, and I think playing pretty well. Yeah, he was the best player on the pitch. They got two draws in the Afcon against Algeria and Ivory Coast, which is no mean feat. So fair play to Stephen, but I've chosen him for quite a few loans, frankly, in his career. Um, but two particularly that stick in my mind. The first couple from Spurs when he was a youth player were unbelievably impressive. He went on loan to Yeovil Town in League One at just 17 and started all but one of their league matches, took four of their five end of season awards. And in November 2013, he was the only loan player to be selected in Yeovil's team of the decade for that one season at 17, 18 years old. Um, nice. He then went on loan to Bristol City in the championship and was utterly brilliant again before a knee cartilage injury cut short his loan spell. He won their Young Player of the Year and was nominee for Player of the Year and helped steer them away from relegation trouble. 
There was then a loan uh, for Swansea in the Premier League. He was slowly sort of stepping up levels and rising to Premier League standard. Um, and he started at the back for Swansea's first ever game in the top flight of English football. His season was punctuated again by another knee injury, this one when he collided with a goalpost. But nonetheless, he was a mainstay at the back alongside Ashley Williams uh, as Swansea went to a, an impressive 11th place. And it was that season that actually saw him get that one England cap. Um, he scored and helped England to a 2-1 lead over Sweden before being subbed off. And England, of course, would go on to lose 4-2 uh, with that incredible Ibrahimovic overhead kick, yeah, if you remember. I do. Um, but the two particular loan spells that I think were very entertaining were the loans that he experienced whilst he was at QPR in the 2015-16 season. The first was with Southampton. He joined, played eight games, of which the last was a 6-1 defeat to Liverpool in the League Cup quarterfinal. Oh, wow. uh, he played absolutely dreadfully in that game. They were, um, It was Sturridge and Origi who were particularly effective that day. They ripped apart the Saints' defence. What I found quite interesting is that Liverpool had clearly seen enough in that performance <laughs> to then... <laughs> loan him so he was recalled by QPR and he went out on loan to Liverpool Jurgen Klopp said we are absolutely convinced that Stephen is the best solution for us <laughs> Liverpool were in a bit of a defensive crisis of sorts they had injuries to Skirtle, Lovren, Sacco and Torre and his first game was as a replacement for Lallana with Liverpool 3-2 down to Arsenal as injury time approached, Joe Allen struck a late equaliser and Kolka had been bought on as a like auxiliary striker. <laughs> Essentially, Klopp actually praised him after that game. He said, I thought it was a good idea. But after the goal, he tried to stay as a striker and we had to shout really loudly to change our tactics. He won three or four headers, important headers for us. And so it was a good change and for him, a good debut. So he'd been bought in as defensive cover, and he found himself a striker. In those next couple of games, he played against Man United and Norwich City, entering the field as a late sub in both. In that second one against Norwich City, he again provided an, an assist for Lalana to score in a 5-4 thriller against Norwich. Wow. So he played three games for Liverpool, all of which were as a striker, which I just found utterly bizarre. That is crazy. And I love what you were saying about his earlier career. This feels like a player who has hit some of his peak form whilst on loan spells. I think Cork has had his problems throughout his career, without doubt, and some of them have been documented. But when he's been on loan, he's almost performed at a higher level than when he's signed permanently for a club. Completely true. He's actually currently permanently on the books with Fenerbahce in Turkey, mm. but he finds himself on loan playing very well at Gaziantep okay. uh, in Turkey. So he's he's very much embraced the uh, the Turkish league whilst playing his his AFCON football as well. So it's been a really nice thing, I think, to see a rejuvenated Kolker in the last couple of years, really, out in Turkey and on the international stage. When a player has those troubles, I think his were alcohol and gambling, obviously horrendously addictive things, and it can be incredibly hard to drag yourself out of that. And Kulka did it so effectively, and he's now back playing his, his best football. And mm. it's probably a shame for England that we've lost him to Sierra Leone. Yeah, the ultimate freelancer, Stephen Kulka. 
Alongside him, a charming tale of a lone spell in the early noughties. I've gone for George A. Costa. George A. Costa. That, yeah. I think, slightly rings a bell. I don't remember him that well. A pretty high, a pretty high calibre player, but newly promoted Charlton under Alan Kerbishley had made an astonishing start to the 2000-2001 season. They were in seventh going into January. But they also had one of the leakiest defences in the league. Um, they were depleted by defensive injury woes and obviously needed to shore up. So Allen, good old Allen, managed to secure a five-month loan deal for 30-year-old Portugal international George A. Costa. Pretty high calibre of player playing for Porto regularly. Um, he just dipped out of the side after an argument with his existing manager, but very decent player. Nicknamed Bicho, which means animal, or Tonke, which means tank, by his colleagues and fans for an aggressive and physical playing style. He had been the captain of Porto for several seasons, winning a total of 24 major titles. He played in a defence alongside Luke Young, Mark Fish and Jonathan Fortune at Charlton in a backline fondly remembered for its pun name of Young Fish Costa Fortune. <laughs> that's incredible he quickly became a club legend he put in gargantuan performances described as the best Charlton defender ever a class above he was they used to sing he comes from Portugal he effing hates Millwall that was the George H. Costa chant on the terraces he eventually after that spell at Charlton couldn't be secured or tied down to a permanent deal so he left and returned to Porto in the summer of 2002, Jose Mourinho was now in charge, and he chose him as captain again of the Porto side that would go on to win a Championship Cup UEFA Cup treble, making him the third Porto skipper in a row to lift cups at international level. The players' winning streak continued then, as the next season he lifted the Champions League with Porto and the Intercontinental Cup. So very well decorated before and after that Charlton loan spell. But he does remember it fondly. He said, I spent fantastic moments in just six months. There was a surprising empathy for me to the point where Charlton are forever in my heart. It's a very special place. You can't compare what FC Porto represents to me. It was my life. But Charlton is in my heart. Maybe I will be back there someday. And I'd imagine that might be as a manager. He's had a fairly unusual career as a manager, uh, which has included CFR Cluj, Mumbai City and the Gabon national team. So in amongst those, Charlton Athletic perhaps wouldn't be so strange for George Costa. I notice he's currently managing in Tunisia as well. So he'll be mm. up against Radi Jaidi. Yeah. Um, he manages Esperance de Tunis. A quality pick. And, and frankly, the ability for a club who were very much mid-table Premier League to get in a future Champions League winner, a regular starter for Porto, an international regular starting centre-back. By all accounts, someone who was ready-made for the Premier League. I mean, someone mm. called Tank probably would, yeah. <laughs> would fare quite well with the physicality of the Premier League. So an excellent pick. I love that. You've poached right back as well, haven't you? I have, because I was desperate to get in Alan Neon. Alan! <laughs> yeah. What a pick, Ben. What a pick. 
One of the more recent names, Alan Neon, um, a six foot two Cameroonian fullback. He's only 33 now and still playing for Leganes in Spain. Um, but you probably know him for his time between 2015 and 2019 when he was playing for Watford and West Bromwich Albion. But you never know with you, Arthur. You might remember his 37 games for Al Avignon more fondly. I know you pick out the unusual spells. Yes, Al Avignon. I actually remember his gameless stint at Udinese. (laughs) (laughs) It was that that I wanted to talk about. This is another Pozzo loan sensation, but there's a real difference with this one. In the summer of 2009, uh, Neon was signed by Udinese, but immediately loaned out to the Pozzo's other club, Granada. He was so popular at Granada that he was then loaned to them for six consecutive seasons. (laughs) Playing more than 200 games for Granada and never playing for Udinese, his parent club. They were all on loan. There was no permanent deal because, frankly, what was the point? It was still the Pozzo's money. Uh, And Neon became quickly an undisputed first choice for Granada, helping them to promotion from Segunda Division B to La Liga. Uh, And his robust and athletic performances didn't go unnoticed in the top flight as well. He was a threat down the right-hand side. He only scored one La Liga goal uh, in a one-all draw against Ibar, um, but he helped Granada consistently finish just above the relegation zone for several years without getting relegated, which was impressive for them. I think those who are au fait with comedy football videos on Twitter may also remember Alan Neom from a comical bust-up with Ryan Babel. Um, This was in a game where Neom challenged Babel for the ball, uh, only for the on-loan Ajax forward to foul him after the initial challenge. And Neom went down in such dramatic fashion, rolling over several times before the referee blew the whistle. While Neom was awarded the free kick, Babel responded by jumping on the floor and rolling around to imitate Neon before approaching the player and fake crying in his face. So no love lost between those two. Yeah, that reminds me of um, of Allardyce with um, the Swansea centre-back. Yeah, Chico Flores. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another former 11 member. I think he was in the Tiki Taka 11, if you want to listen back to that. But I love Neom. I, I don't know, there's something about Alan Neom that without even really having watched him much live, I'm, I'm drawn to him. Just a great name. He sounds like a great character. And who goes on loan for six successive years? It's bizarre. Exactly. I see that his first name is actually fully Alan Romeo Neom. So oh, there we go. Maybe that's where I, that um, love in- thing comes from. Yeah, in terms of the lengthy loan spell, the other one that springs to mind would be Alex from Chelsea to PSV. I think that was to get a work permit. Yes, um, yeah. But he was there for three years in a row and pretty much won everything at PSV. So I think it's a bizarre situation because, as I said earlier, you've got that kind of feeling that they might be torn away from you. I don't know whether the Granada fans were experiencing this every year with their love for him, whether he went back and then it was like, no, he's staying on, where it was initially <laughs> announced as like a six-year deal. <laughs> yeah, Udinese teasing him. But Alan Yon, definitely at home on loan. Oh, the goalkeeper's pass! Jimmy, Jimmy Glass! Jimmy Glass has scored! Jimmy Glass! Jimmy Glass, the goalkeeper, has scored a goal for Carlisle United! 
So Ben, I think you did rather well the last time we did a career tracker. Who is this player from their career journey? Mm. Uh, and so I thought it'd be quite nice to put together another quiz for you. These are players who have been on loan a number of times. Uh, in many senses, they've, they've spent most of their career on loan. So they've never really, truly been at home anywhere. And I'd like you to try and guess who these players are. I'll do my best. Number one, they started their career in their homeland. I'm not going to tell you which, which homeland because I think okay. I'll give it away. Before arriving at Arsenal in 2011. They went on loan to Lorient in France, Betis, Olympiacos, Villarreal, Sporting, Betis, before finally leaving for Frosinone and then heading out to Mexico to play their football. Any idea? Oh, dear. The most successful spell was probably at Olympiacos. He scored eight goals in 32 games. But then I think I remember him for this spell at Villarreal in particular on loan. Yeah, I've, I've no idea. Uh, Wellington Silver? That's a very good guess, to be fair. If I give you the homeland, I think you're going to get it. So okay. we'll have a go. Saprissa in Costa Rica. Ah, Joel Campbell. Correct. Well yeah, done, well done. Oh, that's a good question. He's, he's 29 currently and he's playing for Monterey on loan in Mexico. Nice. <laughs> there we go. Question number two, a current 32-year-old who started his career at Tottenham Hotspur and had quite a few loans from them. He went to MK Dons, Crew Alexandra, Derby County, Peterborough United, Ipswich Town, Leeds United, Hull City. And it was Hull City that things really stuck for him. He signed permanently for them. And in 2017, he signed permanently for West Bromwich Albion, where he currently finds himself. This is tricky. I'm going to go for Jake Livermore, though. Correct. Well done. Nice. Very, very good effort. Your third one is a current 30-year-old still playing in the Middle East. He started his career at Porto before eventually signing for Chelsea in 2013. He went on loans to Villarreal, Everton, Bournemouth, Malaga, Newcastle United, where he signed permanently. And he now finds himself at Al Rayed. Hmm. He sounds a bit like Yoda with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I. 65 caps internationally for his nation. Wow. Which is Ghana. Christian Atsu. Very good. Well yeah. done. We got there. We got there. We got there. Well, that took a while. Well done. Now, if you thought those were hard, Ben. Yeah, I did think those were hard. Well, <laughs> let's ramp it up a little bit. <laughs> this player started their career at West Ham in 2009. Yeah. And he went on loans to, wait for it, West Brom, Swindon Town, Swansea City, Barnsley, Charlton Athletic, Gillingham, Barnsley again, before signing permanently for Wolves, then going to Ipswich Town, where he played 56 times and went on loan to Coventry City. He had a stint in China before going on loan to Nei Mongol Zhongyu. Uh, and he's, he's then had a stint in the lower leagues of English football uh, on permanent deals with clubs such as Gillingham, Newport County, Colchester United. Any ideas? Oh, man, not really. Um, Frank Nubel. 
Oh my god. <laughs> yes. How did you do that? I don't know. That is ridiculous. Well played. It is Frank Nubel. And your final one is a current 36-year-old who started his career at York City before going on loan to Wakefield and Worksop, keeping things local. Uh, then going to Darlington and Fulham, where I think I know him from, largely because he went on a lot of loans from them. He went to Rotherham, Leicester City, Plymouth, Ipswich, and two loans at Hull City uh, before signing permanently for Brighton and Hove Albion. Uh, and he had a few other spells after that, but Brighton is certainly the club that he is most known for. He also has a solitary England sea cap, which I think oh, is great. Oh, wow. Okay. Perhaps Liam Rossinian? No, it's a goalkeeper. David Button. Oh, you got the first name, but I'm afraid it's David Stockdale. Oh, well done. <laughs> yes. That's the quiz. There were a few ridiculously hard ones there. I apologise to you listeners, but it's just Ben's too good at these. So <laughs> that was great. Challenging. I enjoyed that. <laughs> I enjoyed that. We're going 4-3-3, as we said. So I feel we need someone to shield this back four. Who's that, Arthur? Yeah, I couldn't look beyond Mark Vivian Foe for this oh, one. Oh, of course. Oh, Mark, big guy. That's why you can't look big around. Indeed. Kevin Keegan's Man City had just been promoted as first division champions. And they wanted exactly that. They wanted a, a defensive midfielder who could shield their back four. And they sought the temporary services of the Leon midfielder who would score the club's final goal at Main Road before they moved out of that stadium. Devastatingly, Foe died just two months later. The 28-year-old collapsed on the pitch during a Confederations Cup game against Colombia. This came as City were actually negotiating his permanent signing. With no one around him, he fell to the ground and was unable to be resuscitated despite 45 minutes of attempts by medics. He is fondly remembered, though, at his two Premier League clubs, which were West Ham and Man City. At the former, he helped the Hammers finish fifth in the Premier League and they won the Intertoto Cup in his first months in Claret and Blue. And at City, he scored nine goals in 35 league games from defensive midfield while he was on loan, which is astonishing, yeah. considering he's sitting back and shielding the back four. That's a really uh, impressive loan spell, actually. And I, I didn't realise Foe was only on loan at Man City. Obviously, a really fondly remembered player. Yeah, he was tall, athletic, strong and combative. Whilst he was signed as a defensive midfielder, he was this sort of all-round, box-to-box midfielder, he earned 62 caps for Cameroon, scoring eight goals along the way and travelling to eight major tournaments, including two World Cups. And he won the AFCON twice. Kevin Cummins, who is a photographer who was given exclusive access to document Man City's last season at Main Road, tells of a story. When he scored his two goals against Villa in December 2002, I was stood in the tunnel and wanted a shot of him as he came off the pitch. And I just said, goal machine Marco. And he took his shirt off and gave it to me. I was staying with some friends in Manchester and I got a phone call around midnight from Les Chapman. And he said, did Marco give you his shirt off the game? And I said, yeah. He said, 
I told him not to give that shirt away. It's the only one he's got. He won't be able to play against Fulham. So I said, you must have another shirt, Les. And he said, no, he always wears XXL. And we haven't got another until mid-January when Lecoq Sportif send us some more. He's always sending them back to his family in Africa. You're going to have to bring it down to London, to the team hotel. So poor Kevin had to do a late (laughs) night trip to ensure that uh, Mark Vivian could play the next day. But annoyingly, they they ended up playing in their away shirt. So he didn't even need it. Oh, man, that's a great story. I love that. He was so fondly remembered at Man City that they actually retired his number 23 shirt in his memory. Mm. Um, So one of those players who signed had an instant affinity with the fans. They remember him so fondly. And I don't know whether there's an element of that to do with his untimely death or his unfulfilled potential, because his potential was absolutely enormous. And he was really starting to show it at Man City. Frankly, one of his nation's best ever, obviously, was taken away from us far too soon. Yeah, Mark Vivian Foe, very worthy of his position in this home on loan eleven. Playing just ahead of him, another centre midfielder I wanted to add, Jonathan de Guzman. <laughs> Swansea City, like, he was a wonder kid, wasn't he? He was a bit, yeah. He was amazing at Feyenoord when he was younger. A player with good technique, vision and shooting ability from distance. Um, he was also known as a bit of a free kick specialist, which we saw from time to time at the Swans. But like you said, I, I think of him very much as a Swansea City player. So I was surprised to learn that his two years at the club were both loan deals from Villarreal. He actually never signed permanently for them. That's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah, he was a fundamental part of Laudrup's Swansea team between 2012 and 2014. He played 37 and 34 games in his two seasons, scoring nine goals. And Swansea would come a remarkable ninth and twelfth in the Premier League and win the League Cup. He scored a brace in Swansea's 5-0 League Cup final defeat of Bradford City in 2013. And that was Swansea's first ever major piece of silverware. So for a lone player to play such a pivotal role in perhaps the greatest achievement in Swansea's history, I feel, kind of cements his place as someone who was truly at home on loan. He was awarded Swansea's goal of the season for a peach against Stoke. And actually, he was a player Swansea really missed when he left. He was so fundamental to that midfield with the likes of Leon Britton and and Joe Allen that actually I feel like Swansea's decline ultimately was because players like de Guzman had moved on. And sadly, it wasn't just Swansea who suffered. De Guzman had a horrible time after his um, spell in Wales, signing for Napoli Um, He struggled in training and then he was accused of having a fake injury, which was followed by threats and a fight with Napoli director Cristiano Giuntoli. This is remarkable, but de Guzman was adamant he had a problem in his hip, but the club doctors had a look essentially and refused to believe that he was telling the truth, thinking he was just shirking responsibility. It turned out eventually to be a misdiagnosed hernia problem, but that wasn't before he'd had a proper fist fight with the director of the club and they'd been separated by soon-to-be Watford player Juan Camilo Zuniga. That is a bizarre situation. I don't know why he wouldn't just be believed. Was it? Yeah. Was, was the director thinking, 
he just didn't want to play football. Yeah, I, mean, I think surely a footballer would want to play football. I think there was an attitude or a perceived attitude issue that that actually wasn't the case at all. I also found this interesting. Uh, Jonathan de Guzman lays a claim to be the most international or cosmopolitan player of all time. During his spell at Swansea City, he managed the incredible feat of being linked to seven different countries. His mother is from Jamaica. His father is from the Philippines. He was born in Canada. He plays for the Holland national team. He was playing in England for a club from Wales on loan from a team in Spain, which makes him truly international. What a man. What a man. man. I have to say, the um, the fact that he was capped by the Netherlands completely escaped me for some reason. I didn't... I thought he was a Canada international, frankly, because I know his brother, Julian, is a prolific Canada international. I think he's played, like, almost 100 times for them. So I thought the de Guzmans came hand-in-hand hand for Canada. You were wrong, Arthur. You were wrong. I was devastated about that. We need another centre midfielder alongside Jonathan. We do. And such is the attacking impetus of Jonathan that I felt the need to introduce another shield for our defence. I've gone for Jan and Veer. Good pick. Yes, that Sunderland loan spell was interesting. It was. He turned out at the Stadium of Light on loan from Ruben Kazan during the 2015-16 season. Wikipedia describes his excellent defensive abilities and impressive physical strength. Um, He was, by nature, a defensive player, but he could also play box-to-box due to his impressive work rates and stamina. So in many ways, in that sense, a similar player to Mark Vivian Foe. His manager at Rennes, Frederick Antonetti, said, and I quote, he reads the game like Makalele, has the presence of Vieira and can pass the ball like Yaya Torre. Like, Mm. could you get higher praise than that? That's incredible. But it is no exaggeration to say that he was one of the great hopes of French football as a 19-year-old. He absolutely bossed the midfield for Rennes and was permanently linked with Arsenal for some reason. (laughs) Uh, In 2012, Arsenal had a £17 million fee agreed Uh, but he never moved there in the end. I think his troubles off the field were probably a cause for that. There's just this slightly crazy side of him. While he was playing in Russia, there was talk of an extortion racket that was targeting the players. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it was claimed that Jan Mvia slept with an axe at home for his own protection. Uh, When he (laughs) signed for Sunderland, he was asked about this. He played it down. He said... There was one in the house, but it was the landlords. And let's be honest, if a Russian turned up with a gun and I've got an axe, who's going to win that fight? (laughs) That's a fair point, but still very odd. Really bizarre. Um, He was also once robbed by two prostitutes, and he also enjoyed a particularly wild, unsanctioned night out days before the second leg of the under-21 European Championship qualifying playoff against Norway, They'd won the first game 1-0 and they got pretty cocky and went on this night out. They then lost the second leg 5-3, incredibly. So they lost the tie 5-4 in aggregate. He went on this night out with four others and that included Antoine Griezmann. And actually, Jan Mvia was given a 20-month ban from international football for this night out unauthorised. 
Uh, and the others, this has completely slipped under the radar for me, the others who were in the party were banned for 14 months. So Antoine Griezmann was amongst those. He was banned for 14 months for international football. When you compare that to the breach of COVID protocol from Phil Foden, I mean, it's a completely different story. Yeah. We just don't punish these players. Like, frankly, the French would probably ban them for life if they'd done that. That really is interesting. <laughs> I actually yeah. have very fond memories of Jan and Veer in the Premier League. And I remember it was a shame when he left Sunderland because I felt like he had so much more to offer. It started off as people who'd observed his craziness might expect. He was sent off in his first game for Sunderland reserves for a headbutt. <laughs> as he did. Success followed, though. The Frenchman played in 37 of Sunderland's 38 Premier League games as a turbulent campaign ended with Sam Allardyce keeping the club in the top flight, they secured stunning victories against Chelsea, Manu, Everton and Newcastle United, the last of which he was man of the match. To be man of the match in a derby, 3-0 victory against Newcastle is, is a way to endear yourself to the Sunderland faithful. Mm. Uh, and he struck up an effective partnership with longtime servant Lee Catamol and January signing Jan Kershoff with the trio providing a solid platform in the middle of the park. I read a really nice email from Peter Green sent to the Roker Report, which is a Sunderland website. Yeah. It said, so I read today that Jan and Veer would eventually like a return to the Premier League and that he spoke in the French press about how much he enjoyed his time at Sunderland. Does anyone else feel like they've just been hoofed in the bollocks? <laughs> what, a, what a fucking missed opportunity that was. And Veer was easily the most classy midfielder I've seen at Sunderland since Claudio Reyna. And we had him there on a plate, but refused to finance the deal. And as a result, he went elsewhere. It still boils my piss to this day. This fucking club, man. <laughs> oh. and, and I think that encapsulates the feeling of the Sunderland fans. They had a player who was immensely impressive for them, wore his heart on the sleeve, seemed to frankly have cleaned up his act off the pitch. He mm. um, was fully concentrated on his football. And after they refused to, to pay the, the fee for his services at the end of the loan spell, he went back to Ruben Kazan and sort of drifted around a, a little bit, never really finding the kind of form of that Sunderland spell. Um, internationally, he has 22 caps for France, which is incredibly impressive considering the pedigree of midfielder that that side has. Uh, he played at Euro 2012 uh, and he's now actually playing, still at the age of 31, uh, for Olympiakos and actually doing rather well, but I think on an absolute chunk of a pay packet. So, mm. um, yeah, a good player and very much an opportunity missed for Sunderland, I can't help but feel. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant pick. Sinclair, away! And within seconds of the dismissal of Sonner, Wednesday conceded equaliser. So I'm sure you don't need telling again, but one position each week on the 11 is up for grabs, and today it is a striker. And so we have some nominations for that position. But as we're playing a 4-3-3, Ben and I each have our own striker to add to the 11. Ben, who's yours? Christophe Dugarry. Christophe, 
What a player. Another Frenchie in the squad. Yeah, he had a glittering career, really, including spells at Barcelona, Milan and Marseille. He won the 1998 World Cup with France as well as Euro 2000. But when you look into it, his, his goal-scoring record is pretty crap. He only <laughs> scored 62 goals in 362 career games. So that's about one in six. And he never scored double figures in any domestic season throughout his career. That is absolutely bonkers for a yeah. striker who's played like quite a lot for France. <laughs> it is. I mean, he was a class act. He was. He had a six foot two frame, which made him pretty physical. Uh, a deft touch, and he brought others into to play. I thought you were going to say that made him a class act. In which case, no, I'm also a class act. not true. <laughs> Um, and, and actually a little bit more reading suggests that he wasn't always the first choice striker and so would either come off the bench or be asked to do a job out wide. So I, I guess that is some defence of his perhaps fairly feeble goal scoring record. Although one place where he was prolific was on loan at Birmingham City in 2003. The Blues were staring relegation in the face and Steve Bruce made the least Steve Bruce signing ever, bringing the French player to the club. Uh, and he clearly had no idea what to say about it all to the press. He said, I see him as a striker. Well, that's a good start. <laughs> and with the injuries to Stern John and Jeff Horsfield, it's vitally important to have one of them. To get somebody of his calibre is excellent for us. What an underwhelming intro to a player who's just won the World Cup with France. Yeah, that's completely bizarre. And I can't help but feel that he would be a, a good uh, addition to striker sweeper defender. <laughs> His trio of novels. <laughs> 100%. Gary seemed surprisingly up for the challenge. He put in some workmanlike displays. And when Horsfield had come back from injury, um, Horsfield being a former bricklayer, um, he managed to strike up this incredibly unlikely partnership with him that propelled the Blues up the league. Uh, his showing in the 3-2 victory over Southampton has gone down as one of the greatest individual performances in the club's history. Birmingham came back twice from behind in that game. There was a brace from Dugarry, a free kick curled perfectly around the outside of the wall and a powerful header either side of a Brian Hughes strike. And all in all, Dugarry's run of five goals in four matches cemented the club's Premier League status and moved them all the way up to 13th. Perhaps it was a four-game spell of brilliance. And then he, re he remembered that he's not a goal-scoring striker and he went back to form. <laughs> yeah, he did. He signed permanently for Birmingham, but he would only score one more goal in 15 <laughs> further games. Um, but his influence in that original 2003 season did get him a place in the Birmingham City Hall of Fame. It feels like Birmingham have a very low bar for fame. Um, obviously, Dugarry's scored five goals in four games. That's apparently worthy of a place in the Hall of Fame. I remember they retired Jude Bellingham's shirt, despite the fact he was only 18 years old. It's just all a bit random, isn't it, over there? It is a little bit. And I love the fact that you mentioned Jeff Horsfield's bricklaying, because... Yeah. I believe I can't remember who it was, but in my research for another player who I think played for 
Birmingham or West Brom, maybe even. They mentioned Jeff Horsfield's bricklaying as well. Yeah. I think it's a a favourite fact about Jeff Horsfield. It's a really difficult mantle to shake off, isn't it? The former bricklayer. I don't feel like he'd get that treatment if he'd been like a marketing executive or something. It would be a bit strange, wouldn't it, to bring that up? Yeah, it's very much like Ricky Lambert's former beetroot factory. (laughs) (laughs) One story to close on Dugarry that I enjoyed. He once turned up late to the gym at Birmingham with a cup of tea and refused to use the rowing machine, insisting, I'm a footballer, not a rower. Everyone laughed and he walked out. (laughs) And I laughed too. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. Christoph Dugarry, welcome to the On Loan Eleven. And alongside him up front, I've gone for Uwe Fuchs. Who? <laughs> Uwe? <laughs> I don't know who that is. I'm not sure many people outside Middlesbrough do. This is a perfect 11 to slot Fuchs into. Mm. He's a former Germany under 21 international okay. who was bought in from Kaiserslautern by Brian Robson on loan. He's right. a burly, dark haired German who essentially was signed only after Middlesbrough had failed in their attempts to lure Jan Arger Fjortoft to the Riverside. He was signed to help arrest a faltering run of form that during that period of time had become tradition for Middlesbrough around Christmas. And they signed him to get their promotion pushed back on track. Apart from a couple of spells with Fortuna Cologne, the 29-year-old's record was pretty uninspiring. A sequence of four games without a win had seen Middlesbrough slip out of the automatic promotion berths for the first time that season. So enter Uwe. Six goals in his first five starts for the club, Mm. including a hat-trick against second-place Bristol City, shook the club awake again. Harry Pearson, writing for WSC when Saturday comes, said... Though at times Uwe could show unexpected touches of finesse or even sophistication, generally there was something decidedly agricultural about him. His technique had a rustic simplicity too. Whenever he received the ball, he propelled it as far as he could in the general direction of the opposition net with whatever part of his body happened to be available at the time. So he was a very much old-fashioned English striker And he was exactly the tonic that Middlesbrough needed. Off the pitch, he mixed with fans frequently. Uh, He was said to be a regular at the Dickens pub. Ben, do you remember Gladiator? Yeah, I I think I've got this in front of me now. I can't believe it. (laughs) He was said to be romantically involved with Jet, who was one of the gladiators. (laughs) She was a Teesside pinup. And so it was seen as very appropriate that Uwe was there. enjoying his romantic liaisons with her. There was a banner that was put up on the Holgate fencing saying, Uwe loves Jet, which I thought was was a rather touching thing, especially for a lone player to get so heavily involved with the local community. I think it's a really lovely, lovely thing. Absolutely. I can imagine another banner maybe would be, Uwe, you will go on my first whistle. Although I don't really know how you convey that accent on a banner. Was that Raven? I think that was meant to be the comment that the referee... That was Gladiator. Yeah, but it it didn't really fully come off. No, I applaud the intent. Thank you. Um, (laughs) He finished with nine goals in his 13 games. Middlesbrough turning down the chance to pay 500 grand to turn it into a permanent deal. 
His last start for the club was against Sheffield United. He was sent off for an absolutely horrendous knee-high studs-up challenge that prompted the teletext headline of Uwe Fuchs off. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, frankly, it was probably a good idea that Millwall were the club that paid the 750 grand for his services instead of Borough because it really didn't work out for him. He, I think, scored only a couple of goals for them before leaving. It's rumoured that whilst playing for Millwall, he would regularly pop up in the away end whenever Borough played in the capital. He developed this brilliant affinity with the Middlesbrough fans. Undoubtedly, his goals were of unquantifiable historic weight for Middlesbrough. I mean, if they hadn't got promoted that season, if the slide had continued, we may not have experienced the joy of watching Juninho in the Premier League, Ravanelli, those players swiftly followed. And they got to two League Cup finals and an FA Cup final in 96, 97 and 97, 8. So all of that success was in a large way due to Uwe Fuchs. And I think he's a player that is not recognised outside of Middlesbrough because frankly, it was only alone. It was only in the championship, but it is alone that I think deserves to be remembered. And I'm delighted that Uwe Fuchs is joining the eleven. Great research, Arthur. Brilliant. Welcome, Fuchs. And now the up for grabs name, who will be the final striker in our 11. Uh, you get to choose that one on Twitter, at 11pod is the word, not the number. Uh, there will be a poll going up where you can vote for who you want to see taking up that final spot. And first of all, we have a nomination. We're incredibly grateful to Ibrahim Mustafa. He is the current news editor for Eurosport. And excitingly, you can check out his book, No Longer Naive. It's about African football's growing impacts at the World Cup, available on Amazon. Sounds like a fab read. I'll be reading it myself. But who has he nominated for the Home on Loan 11? Before Mohamed Salah, there was Amir Zaki, who I believe was like the prototype as far as free-scoring Egyptian forwards in the Premier League are concerned. Go back to 2008, and Wigan picked up Zaki on loan from Zamalek, and the beefy bullneck striker had an instant impact with a brilliant debut goal against West Ham, opening something of a goal floodgate over the next few games, including two goals in a 3-2 loss against Liverpool at Anfield, the second of which was a fantastic scissor kick volley from the edge of the box, temporarily silencing the cop, which is something. He was now on eight goals in his first 10 appearances, briefly putting him top of the scoring charts and apparently had the likes of Real Madrid keeping tabs on him. He went on to get 11 in all competitions by the turn of the year, but sadly the goals dried up and let's just say punctuality issues led Steve Bruce to label him the most unprofessional player he had ever worked with. Naturally, Wigan didn't take up the option of a permanent deal and Zaki never hit these dizzy heights again. But for a brief moment in the northwest, he was a superstar and for me, walked so Mo Salah could run. So there's that. I think that's a great shout. Amazaki, of course, that lone spell at Wigan. He has featured in one of our uh, episodes before, actually, for One Season Wonders. But I suppose loan and One Season Wonders go hand in hand. Very much a One Season Wonder on loan. Mm. Um, and what a player he was. Really, really brilliant player, Amazaki, for about half a season. Yeah, what a player he was, by the way. Thank you, Ibrahim. Uh, and I also wanted to bring up another nomination that we had in. We opened it up to our listeners the other day. Uh, and I think the best suggestion slash only suggestion came in from Ben K. He said, Fernando Morientes to Monaco, 22 goals in 42 games 
and knocking his parent club out of Europe ain't too bad. Yeah, that was an incredible spell, to be fair. Knocking Real Madrid out. I think they knocked Chelsea out of the Champions League as well. Uh, and he might well have been top scorer in Europe that season. So a really, really good shout. But not the best shout because okay. Marek Saganowski is the best <laughs> shout. I do remember that name. Yeah, he was signed on loan by Southampton, unsurprisingly, listeners. I'm sorry, it's another Saints player. In January 2007, from Troy in France, 10 goals in his first 13 league games, including a hat-trick and the 6-0 defeat of Wolverhampton Wanderers. That was an incredible game. I remember watching that and thinking, we'll do very, very well to get a point out of this. They were a promotion contender. We were sort of mid-table, kind of trying to push to get into the playoffs. And his finishing that day was absolutely spectacular. It included a sumptuous lobbed finish from a wide angle. And his goals did help lift Sampton out of the doldrums they were in at the end of January and push them into a playoff position. I think the hallmark of a signing that is someone who's home on loan is a sharp decline after signing permanently. And that was exactly what we experienced with Marek Saganowski. He only scored nine goals in the 55 he played after signing permanently. He earned 35 caps for Poland. He scored five goals and represented them at Euro 2008. And to this day, he is the only Polish footballer to score for a two-digit score. He scored the 10th goal in Poland's 10-0 victory over San Marino. So he's got his name in history, in lights. Go Marek Saganowski and please vote for him on Twitter. Nice. I want to add one more name to that list. Anthony Stokes. <laughs> was he Arsenal and Sunderland, I think? Yeah, he? you're right. He was a promising youngster on Arsenal's books when he was loaned. Uh, and this is his most impressive loan and why I want to put him into the vote. He was loaned to Falkirk in 2006. I never thought we'd get a Falkirk player into this podcast, but there we go. He became the first player to score hat-tricks in successive SPL games while on loan. And then he hit a third in what proved to be his last game for the club, a 3-1 home victory over Inverness. His continuing good form saw him named Young Player of the Month for October and November. And by the end of his loan spell, he'd scored 16 goals in 18 League and Cup appearances. A good enough loan spell to earn the respect of the Falkirk fans, but also a £2 million move to Sunderland. And a little bit like Saganowski, his career spluttered a bit after that. He had a decent time at Celtic. But his career, unfortunately, went off a bit off the rails after that. He was arrested for headbutting a part-time Elvis Presley impersonator, which is um, something I didn't think I'd be saying. And he played for an Iranian club later in his career called Tractor. <laughs> the, uh, Tractor, almost, yeah. almost better name than Hammer and Pincers. Mm. Um, yeah, the club was founded in 1970 by the Iran Tractor Manufacturing Company, hence the name. And somewhat bizarrely, they have a derby against a club founded by a tool manufacturer called Machine Sazi. So the, the tractor machine derby is uh, one of the big ones in Iran. That's phenomenal. Excellent nomination. A player who didn't really fulfil that potential. I remember he was absolutely rapid, I think, Anthony Stokes. But no, very good loan spell. 
classic glimpse of form on loan and then back to type. So go to Twitter at 11 pods. You've got Zaki, Morientes, Saganovsky or Stokes to add to our 11. Viafara. Saganovsky! Game on again! Marek Saganovsky with his seventh goal in five games and the Saints are interested again. On the bench, one name that I could not ignore was Michael Hector. Oh, a former Reading player. That would have annoyed yeah. me if you'd got for him, though. I think so. It was simply just because of the prolific loan spells. 15 loans in his career, 11 of which were from Reading. Yeah. I just think it just shows a lack of love, really, doesn't it? No no club willing to, to keep you on. I guess Reading probably rated him he came into his own at Reading in the end but Reading and Fulham I guess are his only real homes in football yeah he was a talent I think he made the wrong call going to Chelsea I think that kind of scuppered him in the end um and also on the bench uh, a shout out to Borja Valero the former West Brom midfielder he actually went on loan to RCD Mallorca and won the Dom Ballon award for the best Spanish player in the league that year which I thought was an impressive achievement on loan Obviously, 4-3-3, we haven't got any wingers, so I felt we needed one to come off the bench, and that's Miroslav Stock. Yes. He uh, he signed from Chelsea to FC Twente on loan and helped them win the Eredivisie, which, again, a great achievement. So to run you through our team, we've got Jimmy Glass in goal, Daniel Poodle at left-back, centre-back pairing of Stephen Colker and Jorge Costa, right-back, Alan Neon, defensive midfield pairing of Mark Vivian Foe and Yanam Via. Ahead of them, Jonathan de Guzman, Uwe Fuchs, Christoph Dugary, and a choice of yours up front. Thanks for listening. Listener.